there is, as you know, major breaking news tonight about the Republican Party and its leadership from the former president of the United States, who was just smacked down by a judge in New York, to the historic chaos unfolding in the House of Representatives, where <clears throat> Kevin McCarthy was just ousted as Speaker of the House. And we are going to get to all of that this evening. But to understand how we got here, we need to go back exactly 1,000 days ago to January 6, 2021, when a violent mob stormed the U.S. Capitol. In the wake of that deadly attack, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy took to the House floor and said this. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. That moment was the closest Kevin McCarthy ever came to pulling himself out from under the heel of his party's hard right base. It did not last long. After that rebuke of Donald Trump, Mr. McCarthy spent each and every day paying penance, trying to work his way back into the good graces of the far right. Less than three weeks later, McCarthy flew down to Mar-a-Lago to pledge fealty to Donald Trump. Later that year, McCarthy refused to work with Democrats to establish a nonpartisan commission to investigate the events of January 6th. When Democrats went ahead with what became the January 6th committee, McCarthy did everything in his power to discredit that investigation. When Republicans' narrow midterm victory handed them an equally narrow majority in the House, McCarthy was still working off his debt to the MAGA base. After 14 bruising failed votes for Speaker, he effectively sold his speakership to the MAGA caucus. He gave conservative House Freedom Caucus members coveted committee assignments. He opened a wide-ranging investigation into the so-called weaponization of the federal government. And he gave far-right Republicans the ability to oust him from the speakership with just a single member needed to call that vote. But even after all of that, far-right Republicans still wanted more. And Speaker McCarthy obliged. He started a standoff with the White House over the debt ceiling. He opened an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. He passed an ultra-conservative bill to fund the government, which included massive cuts to social safety net programs. But none of it was enough. And it all came to a head today when Speaker Kevin McCarthy learned a lesson he probably could have learned a thousand days ago. You cannot appease the mob. This was the moment today when Kevin McCarthy officially lost his speakership. The yeas are 216. The nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Today, these eight Republicans voted with all of the Democrats in the House to remove McCarthy from power to end his speakership. In a last-ditch effort to save McCarthy, his allies made overt appeals to Democrats to bail him out. They asked Democrats to vote with Republicans to keep McCarthy in power. But Democrats in the House had already learned over the last thousand days that they could not trust Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy had either ignored them entirely or sold them out again and again. Just this week, 
After Democrats helped McCarthy avert a disastrous government shutdown, McCarthy went on television and tried to blame Democrats for the dysfunction. I wasn't sure it was going to pass. You want to know why? Because the Democrats tried to do everything they can not to let it pass. They did Democrats dilatory. were the ones who voted you, for this did you wa- in a did larger you watch- number than Republicans to, to keep the continuing resolution alive. That moment was reportedly foremost in Democrats' minds when they voted in lockstep against Kevin McCarthy today. He had his chance to earn their trust, and he blew it. Tonight, Congressman McCarthy announced that he is officially giving up. He will not run for speaker again. I believe I can continue to fight, maybe in a different manner. I will not run for speaker again. I'll have the conference pick somebody else. House Republicans are now in the wilderness, uncharted territory. For now, Congressman Patrick McHenry will serve as interim speaker. He says he aims to hold an election for the new speaker next Wednesday. On that note, Republican Congressman Troy Niels has already nominated Donald Trump to be the speaker. And he can do that because the speaker does not have to be a member of the House. But does he have to be in good standing with the law? Just asking, because today a New York judge had to place a gag order on Donald Trump for lies he has been spreading about court officials working his trial. But when Trump was asked about the man he used to refer to as my Kevin, Trump imposed a gag order on himself. He had nothing to say. So just who gets to be the next Speaker of the House? Very much an open question. Maybe going to take a few rounds of voting or maybe more than a few rounds. As he was leaving the Capitol tonight, Republican Congressman Dusty Johnson summed up his party's predicament, saying, you really have to wonder whether or not the House is governable at all. I'm not sure I wish this job on anyone. Joining me now is Jennifer Palmieri, co-host and executive producer of The Circus and former communications director under President Obama, David Plouffe, former White House senior advisor, also in the Obama administration, and Brendan Buck, former aide to Republican House speakers Paul Ryan and John Boehner. Um, It is great to have all of you guys to talk about this historic moment and historic not really in a good way. David, how are you thinking about what happened here today? Well, I thought the last comment was probably the most important one going forward, which is I'm not sure it's a job worth having. Someone will take it. Someone will be elected. Um, they will make a bunch of commitments and promises to try and appease the right. Like McCarthy, they will not be successful. So I think it sets up chaos and, and turbulence and protect, uh, potentially damage to the economy uh, in the not too distant future. So, uh, you know, I think if you're an American, uh, this is a pretty unsettling, if predictable, uh, turn of events. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, now Nancy Pelosi was able to manage quite fine with a majority this narrow. Uh, but I'm not sure that anybody who comes in the aftermath of McCarthy uh, has any chance of landing the airplane uh, in a way that's going to, I think, benefit both the Republican Party, but certainly America more broadly. Jen, I was, um, I mean, it really bears mentioning that Pelosi was speaker with very similar margins and it, it looked nothing like this chaos. What did you make of Democrats' position here? Absolutely not trying to help Kevin McCarthy in any way. I talked to a lot of Democrats today on the Hill. I spent all day on the Hill, Alex. Remember how that was? Oh, I sure do. Your your circus days. A lot of of people uh, sending their regards to you. But uh, I talked to a lot of House Democrats, a lot of moderate Democrats. And, you know, I think 
particularly in the moderate, you know, the moderate Democrats, they thought really long and hard about whether they should throw Kevin McCarthy a lifeline. And I think that had they thought that they were dealing with somebody man of integrity, that this was something that would actually that that uh, that a continued speakership under McCarthy might help, you know, avert chaos. People might have considered doing that, but they were really convinced that he was not a man of their word. You know, he was someone that had had misled both Republicans and Democrats. And that, you know, I talked to Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. She's like, they're having a mini civil war in their caucus and they need to sort that out. I also talked to two of the members of Congress, Nancy Mace and Congressman Tim Burchett from Tennessee, both of who voted to oust McCarthy. Both—it was sort of a surprise that, I, you know, not both of the, those two voted 15 times to make Kevin McCarthy speaker in January, right? So—and I think in both cases, they felt that McCarthy, in addition to, you know, not governing well, Congressman Burchett's really worried about government spending— um, he had personally slighted both of them. You know, he he mocked uh, Congressman Burchett because he said he was going to pray about whether or not he should vote for McCarthy as speaker. Nancy Mace felt misled, particularly on some of the um, abortion uh, 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 policies that she expected to be dealt with in the House that weren't. So it was a lot of bad faith across the board um, that— you know, in addition to the MAGA wing trying to control him that brought him to this point. Yeah, Jen, just to follow up on that, um, the way in which this was very deeply personal for those who voted to oust him, there was reporting that that interview that Kevin McCarthy did on Sunday with Margaret Brennan on CBS was played to the Democratic conference or caucus before they made their votes, really just to kind of drive the knife in his speakership to show Democrats just what a turncoat Kevin McCarthy was. Did you hear that from Democrats, moderates who might have otherwise been inclined to support Kevin McCarthy as he continued to hold on to the gavel? Yeah. <laughs> full stop. Yes, I did. It full stop. And that it seemed that this 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 ran at the beginning of the House Democratic Caucus. And uh, it had the intended effect. But I think that, you know, Democrats have been wrestling with this for a while, this question of how they're going to deal with it. And I think they really thought—this not a, this is not a partisan decision. It wasn't as like, oh, great, we want to see chaos on the other side. I think they really thought— we can't trust this man. We can't give him our vote, certainly with no kinds of assurances. They're just going to have to work it out on their own. Yes, it puts you in the dangerous situation that uh, Pluff described, but, you know, the Republicans have to be the ones to figure it out. But, dot, 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 Brendan, but what? I mean, what is the answer here? I'm, I think, let's just talk for a second about Nancy Mace, who is uh, upset at, uh, for, uh, per, for personal reasons, for policy reasons, but is not someone who necessarily wanted to, the speaker to be more extreme on certain social pro programs, like, for example, abortion. And yet the person she's going to end up with is likely to be more hard right than Kevin McCarthy. Is that not correct? Uh, certainly. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if they're further to the right, but they're at least going to have the backing of Matt Gates And Every one of those folks who, who kicked out Kevin McCarthy today know that they can now do that to the next person. And whoever is speaker is going to have to look over their shoulder even more than folks in the past. I, this does not get any better. What Dusty Johnson said is absolutely right. Um, we are not right now fit for governing. We are a party much more made for being in the minority. We like to vote against things. My, my whole issue with all of these folks is their problem is not really with the Speaker of the House. It wasn't with Kevin McCarthy. It wasn't with Paul Ryan or John Boehner. 
These guys just don't like the realities of governing. There are some things you have to do when you're in the majority, like keep the government open, like raise the debt limit, like fund the government for the long term, uh, deal with Democrats, you know, basic things like that. And those are fireable offenses. It doesn't make any sense. They, they've set a bar that he can never meet. The next person is going to have to meet the, that same bar as well. I mean, it's the problem being speaker these days. You are basically running around trying to make the fantasies of some of these members become realities. And when that's the game, you can, you can never win. Now, I understand maybe the idea that you should stick up, stand up to them more and, and fight back. All that stuff that you talked about in the, in the open wasn't enough to save McCarthy. But it was required to get to this point. And that's yeah. the reality of being a Republican speaker right now. You have to do so many things or they will throw you out because it works really well for them in their own in their own political world. David, in this bizarre world in which we all unfortunately live <laughs> some some days, I would say, unfortunately, uh, Matt Gates is incredibly powerful and is a person who's going to play a role, as Brendan says, in picking the next speaker. If you're Joe Biden looking at all of this unfold, what is your assessment of the situation as it concerns your own priorities? Yeah, well, what a frightening fact that is that Matt Gates now is one of the most powerful people in one of the most powerful or the most powerful city in the world. Um, well, listen, Joe Biden, uh, by the way, along with, I think, almost every Democrat and a lot of Republicans wants to keep the government open. Um, so that's a complicating factor. I think that's gotten harder. Um, obviously, the list of legislation that was going to get done between now and next November is infinitesimal. So beyond that, I don't think you can expect much. But I'm sure Biden will find ways uh, to, to lift this up on the campaign trail, uh, which is if you give Donald Trump and Matt Gates. Um, you know, full control, um, you know, from a from a policy standpoint, from a, a leadership standpoint, from a moral standpoint, uh, you know, it's it's devastating. So uh, I think this dysfunction, I don't want to overstate it because swing voters in Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the presidential race don't pay that much attention to Congress. But to the extent the Trump circus looks like it's on steroids now and the entire party uh, is going to follow him where it's not about to Brendan's point about governing. Uh, it's about theater and performance. Um, but but I, you know, listen, I don't see how the government uh, is is going to stay open in 43, 42 days, whatever it is, because to Brendan's point, I think that um, the leash just got a lot shorter. The leash was already like three inches. Um, now it's almost uh, completely non-existent. Uh, and so at the end of the day, it's going to make the next 45 days harder. Uh, but I do think having all that dysfunction as a backdrop for presidential race where clearly if Donald Trump's the nominee, one of Joe Biden's core arguments is going to be yeah. you don't want to return to the circus. Uh, it's a supporting fact. A supporting fact. OK, Jen Palmieri, David Pluff, Brendan Buck, please stay with me because we have a lot more ahead, including the eight Republicans who voted yes on making McCarthy the first speaker or ousted from the House of Representatives. It turns out those eight Republicans all have one big thing in common. And after that, what happens when Donald Trump gets a gag order? Stay with us. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. 
so you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. That was the now former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, moments after he was effectively fired from his job this afternoon. McCarthy walked right past reporters, ignoring their questions about whether he would resign with a big smile plastered on his face. Now, most politicians would not want to be the reason their party leader had to make that kind of walk of shame, not just out of fear about what the party might do as retribution, but also out of fear of how their constituents might respond. And okay, most Republicans did not actually vote to oust Kevin McCarthy today, but eight of them very much did. And if you look at how all eight of those Republicans did in the 2022 midterms, you're going to notice a pattern. They were all elected with incredibly safe margins of victory. In other words, they are not too worried about getting reelected. Compare that to, say, Lauren Boebert. Here was her vote on the House floor today. Boebert. No for now. Nay. No for now. Congresswoman Boebert sort of trying to have it both ways there. She wanted her rebel street cred. But in the end, she didn't actually vote to oust McCarthy. And that may have something to do with the fact that Ms. Boebert's last election was one where she only won by 546 votes. In other words, Lauren Boebert cannot afford to alienate any voters. But these eight people, they could. And I think that is an important part of the story here. Still with me is Jen Palmieri, co-host and executive producer of The Circus and former communications director under President Obama, David Pluff, and Brendan Buck. Um, Brendan, it seems to me that the safety of the members in these districts really has a role to play in just how insane they can afford to be in terms of their behavior in the House of Representatives. Is this the root of the problem? And can Republican leadership do anything about it? It's the it's the root of much deeper than what happened today. Absolutely. Uh, the culture of the House Republican conference is always to do whatever is best for the base. And that is, that goes for everything that we do. And it didn't always used to be that way. I mean, when I first got to the Hill, you knew who your majority makers were, those people in the swing districts who you had to pay attention to. You understood you couldn't go too far. You understood you needed to let them vote a certain way because they were the ones who kept you in the majority. Nobody thinks that way anymore. Everything is about not only playing to the base, but also throwing your your colleagues under the bus if that needs to be the case. They're very cavalier with some of their swing district members. Now, there aren't very many of them left, and that's that's why it is. But nobody pays attention to the middle anymore. And Kevin McCarthy found that out very quickly. Um, And I I continue. I don't see any reason that's going to change course anytime soon. We only have fewer and fewer swing districts uh, after uh, maps are drawn each each 10 years. Uh, Jen, there's also this strange cognitive dissonance between 
the far right MAGA caucus doing as much as they can to make trouble for rhino establishment Republicans. And then some of those moderate rhino establishment Republicans, those that are left, trying to blame this entire mess on the Democrats, which is what was happening today. Republicans out there saying Speaker McCarthy is being thrown overboard because the Democrats won't stand by him. And my question is, who is that line of logic going to work on? I think they were just spinning. I think they just didn't know what to do. I think that, I mean, we went from 20, 24 hours ago, Kevin McCarthy tweeted X whatever, bring it on. And 24 hours later, he is gone and just said that he would not run to, he would not run again to be Speaker of the House. I think that they were just, you know, spinning their wheels and turning. And the, the default is to blame Democrats for not standing by Kevin McCarthy. I mean, what do you think would have happened to Kevin McCarthy if Democrats started to vote for him? I think that Republicans would have bolted from him, from McCarthy even sooner. Like, I just don't think there was any scenario today under which Kevin McCarthy was going to remain the speaker. David, what um, is there any argument that Republicans can make to swing state voters that doesn't make them look like a ship of fools as it regards this speaker vote? No, not. I mean, and, and the point Brendan makes is really important. I mean, I used to work on the Hill for Democratic leader. The, the windshield we looked out was our swing members. I think that's what Paul Ryan did. That's what Jane Boehner, John Boehner did. Nancy Pelosi certainly did. it, uh, And that's different now. Uh, and this is a very fragile majority the House Republicans have. I mean, if you just lay over presidential year turnout on the districts, you know, the Democrats should win somewhat comfortably. Now, you know, that's a model that's not the real world. But no, I don't think so. And again, I think, you know, you've got Trump, you've got the chaos in the House. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of swing voters out there um, who say they don't want to return to that. And I think particularly if Democrats, and I think they can make the argument, hey, if Trump wins and the Republicans hold on to the House, they've got a decent chance of winning back the Senate. It could be a trifecta. Do you really want this ship of fools, the term you used in charge? So, no, I think. But again, Brendan's point is so important. The Matt Gates of the world, but it's not just him. It's it's most of the caucus, not all. You know, they've created this false reality. It's a world they want to live in, which is not the world that exists. And swing voters don't really exist in that world. It's all about catering to about 20 percent of the population, which is that hardcore MAGA base. Well, the, but David, just to follow up on that, it 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 defies logic, given that the vulnerable swing state Republicans are the ones that have handed Kevin, Kevin McCarthy, the speaker's gavel in the first place. Right. I mean, Brendan says, I think rightly so, that the House Republican conference is very cavalier with their most vulnerable members. Yeah, I mean, cavalier is too strong a word. They don't care, basically. And again, in, 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 in this is, you know, Nancy Pelosi, John Boehner, you know, Dick Eppard, Hastert, all these folks, you know, they had their governing hat they had to put in, of course. But then you have your political hat. And you're worried about those vulnerable members, uh, particularly if you have a narrow majority. And that just does not seem so. So those are the people I think that are most interesting when they go back to town halls, when they're doing interviews with reporters, those vulnerable Republicans in New York and California and other swing states. Uh, this kind of chaos really doesn't suit them. And again, this is a, a could not be majority heading into a presidential year turnout election. And it almost seems that many Republicans in the House uh, could care less. All right. Well, <laughs> to be continued, I suppose, my friends, Brendan Buck, David Pluff, Jen Palmieri, the co-host of the new MSNBC podcast, How to Win in 2024.
excellent, which is available now wherever you get your podcast. Thank you guys all so much for your time. I sincerely appreciate it. We have much more still to come tonight, including the humiliating split screen for the Republican Party today. The speaker ousted, the front runner gagged. What it says about the party of Lincoln, that's ahead. But first, what Donald Trump did to earn a gag order in court today. Neil Katyal is here to talk about that next. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It only took two days, technically a day and a half, for Donald Trump to be gagged by Judge Engeron in his New York fraud trial. It all happened after Trump went on Truth Social and posted the name, photograph and Instagram account of the judge's principal law clerk. The post attacked the clerk for being in a photograph with the Senate majority leader, Democrat Chuck Schumer. Then Trump went to the cameras outside the courthouse and continued his invective. They rigged the trial. It's a fraudulent trial. The attorney general is a fraud. And we have to expose her as that. Uh, you see what's going on? It's a rigged deal. What's so frankly, and frankly, uh, you saw what was just put out about Schumer and the principal clerk. That is disgraceful. Now, Judge Engeron did not take any of this lightly, calling the attacks unacceptable and inappropriate. He ordered Trump to remove the post. And according to NBC News, the judge told the court to consider this a gag order on all parties with respect to posting or publicly speaking about any member of my staff. The judge said that violations of this order would lead to swift, meaningful sanctions. I am joined now by former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal. Neil, first of all, it's great to see you in person. Uh, New York City is where all the action is, legally speaking, haven't you heard? Uh, first of all, meaningful sanctions. What does that practically mean? Well, it could mean in an or- ordinary thing, if there's a gag order imposed um, and it's violated, it means putting someone in jail. Now, a gag order, Alex, is really hard to get in a case. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen it in any of my thousand really? plus cases. Yeah, I mean, because people know, like, they use common sense. And, you you know, it's kind of like failing kindergarten. To get a gag order imposed, you got to kind of try. You got to work managed, at it. Yeah, Trump managed to work at it and do it and succeed. Um, but it took a lot of work on his part. And now I think the judge is basically saying, you attack a member of my staff and there will be serious sanctions, and including 
even up to jail. Well, and yet, as hard as it is to get the gag order, I think it's the broad expectation that Trump is inevitably going to violate it in some fashion or slander some other person involved in this case, whether it's the prosecution or the judge himself. Yeah. So would your expectation be that this is going to be kind of the, you know, a laddering up of a punitive ladder up in terms of the judge issuing more gag orders until at some point he is forced to do something more drastic? Uh, yes, exactly. So basically, like if we're going to ask, is Trump going to violate the gag order? Almost certainly, yes. I mean, it's more likely that he'll violate the gag order than almost anything, like than George Santos being the next speaker. I mean, we're talking, you know, a significant probability he's going to violate the gag order. And then the question is, is will the judge at that point take the really heavy medicine of putting a former president in jail or will there be some sort of warning and monetary fine first? I expect the latter, but it does really depend on exactly how Trump violates it. Well, and isn't Trump's sort of goal, his existential goal to stress test institutions and the judicial branch is no exception to that? The idea that you know he want, part of this is he feeds off of this controversy. He gains strength from disruption. And I mean, honestly, can you say as a lawyer that we we as a country could really face a possibility of a former president, criminal defendant being put in jail? That just seems as necessary as that may ultimately be. That seems right. really hard to fathom. Right. Your diagnosis of the problem seems exactly right to me. Trump is a kind of Voldemort like figure who like gets his strength by basically attacking institutions. And he does it here. He's doing it in Washington, D.C. with the January 6th trial, of which there's another potential gag order that and a hearing on that that's coming up. So, yes, that's how Trump acts. And you know, judges are loath to jail anyone, you know, particularly before a jury convicts or here it's a bench trial that would, you know, a jury, a judge finding a finding of guilt. So you don't like to do stuff in advance. But when you have a litigant who behaves this way, you got no other choice. And let me just tell you, if this were any other litigant, yeah. we would already see serious sanctions, perhaps even jail at this point. You mentioned uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin, who's overseeing the federal case against Trump and his activities around the 2020 election. She's having a hearing on October 16th to sort of determine whether or not there's going to be punitive measures taken against Trump. The prosecution, the DOJ, would very much like the president to be censored in some way. Are judges watching each other's behavior in this? Like, does Judge Engeron in, in the Tish James case sort of set a precedent for Judge Chutkin, or is are these sort of separate and apart from one another? Well, the technical answer is they're separate and apart from one another. What happens in one trial shouldn't carry over and spill over into the next, but they do, of course. Judges are human beings. And every time you cross a threshold, other jurisdictions watch. So, for example, it's New York that crossed the threshold of indicting a former president. Never been done before, but the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg does that. And then, lo and behold, you see indictments in other jurisdictions, both federal and Fulton County, Georgia, as a result. Here, this judge has taken the step of issuing a gag order against the former president. Yes, this is a New York civil trial, but you can bet dollars to donuts that Judge Chutkin, a very, very respected judge in D.C., is watching these proceedings and thinking, you know, I'm going to wind up in this mess, too, with a defendant who's mouthing himself off, attacking my clerks, attacking me and the like. She's incredibly careful and I think tried to do everything to avoid a showdown. 
But that showdown is now looking inevitable. And as you say, on October 16th, there will be a hearing. And I do expect at that point there will be some sort of order imposed on Donald Trump because the court can't tolerate this. And Trump is expecting He's sitting there saying to himself, I'll bring this to the Supreme Court, my sanctions and the like. It's my free speech. He will lose that every day of the week. This is a Supreme Court, regardless, people have disagreements about various things, abortion, whatever. But they really care about the decorum of court proceedings, the legitimacy of courts, and they will not stand for this kind of behavior with a court, with a federal judge. Yeah, and they've proven themselves to be particularly sensitive to criticism lobbed from the outside at the justices, right? Whether that criticism is warranted or not, one would imagine they would be sympathetic to the judges in this case, Mm -hmm. who may be the recipients of Trump's slander. I, there is the kind of libelous rhetoric or threatening rhetoric that you that Trump issues forth on social media. But there's also the fact, Neil, that he's been in this courtroom and he's kind of a, a big presence in, in this in this civil case. He's outside on the court steps. He's doing his version of tweeting. I got to wonder, I think it's clear that this New York civil case deeply affects him, perhaps because it's a financial case. But do you think that you could make the case that his presence in the courtroom, the things he's saying on the courtroom steps are themselves a form of intimidation here? Well, I would distinguish between what he's doing in court and out of court. Because in court, he has an absolute right to be there. It's his trial. Absolutely, if he wants to be there and watch the proceedings, he should. And he obviously cares about how he's perceived on his net worth. And so, you know, that's fine. The stuff he's doing outside the courtroom, I have a real problem with it. I think any second grader knows that you don't go and attack the judge in your case. That is not an appropriate way to behave. Um, but Trump lacks the dignity even of a second grader. And um, and I do think it's a real problem. But, um, you know, if he continues with the attacks, and this gag order appears to only apply to attacks on the staff, not on the judge. Right. If he keeps attacking the judge, I do expect yet another gag order to be filed, this time about the judge. Can they stop him from coming to court? I don't think they can ban him from the courtroom. It's a civil trial. You have an absolute right in a criminal trial to be present for your own case. Civil, I think it's a more complicated question, but he's not going to be banned from attending his own trial. The only upshot is it's supposed to take several months and... He's going to be busy with other cases in the meantime. Neil Katyal, no disrespect to kindergartners and second graders. Absolutely. Uh, With a first grader and a kindergarten, I can say they're behaving a little bit better than some people. (laughs) Thank you for your time. It's great to see you, Neil. Still ahead, the vote to oust Kevin McCarthy today is historic, but it follows a pattern for the Republican Party. Just how many of the party's speakers have been pushed out one way or another? We're going to count them coming up next. I do hope that I have left a few footprints behind that may be of value to those who come after me. Just as I have benefited from the footprints of those who I followed to this most wonderful of institutions, the People's House. Dennis Hastert, the man you saw just there, was this century's very first Republican Speaker of the House. He held the Speaker's gavel from 1999 to 2007. He got the job after the hasty departure of his predecessor, Newt Gingrich. That's because when Republicans lost five seats in the House during the 1998 elections, they turned on Gingrich. And his longtime ally, Congressman Bob Livingston, threatened to challenge Gingrich for the speakership. 
So Gingrich resigned and was ultimately replaced by Hastert. To this day, Dennis Hastert remains the longest-serving leader of the Republican conference. And Hastert might have retired in the good graces of his party, except that several years after his resignation, Hastert was convicted of financial crimes related to child sex abuse. So... Then there was John Boehner, who, as Speaker in 2015, faced the threat of a motion to vacate from Congressman Mark Meadows. That motion never came to a vote, but the effort alone led Boehner to resign in the middle of his term. He served for four years as Speaker. And then there was Paul Ryan. His time as Speaker coincided with Donald Trump's election and a new era of politics and the Republican Party, for that matter. Ryan reportedly told friends that serving as speaker during the Trump administration was, quote, agonizing. Trump went after Ryan with public insults, in addition to Trump's near daily controversies that Ryan had to govern through. About 30 months into the job, Paul Ryan opted to vacate the speaker's chair and also to retire from public office entirely. And now, as of today, Kevin McCarthy, the party's fourth speaker this century, served for 269 days before being ousted by members of his own party in an historic vote. So by our count here, as my friend Chris Hayes pointed out to me, arguably the most successful Republican speaker of the House in the 21st century was a serial child molester. Now, to be fair, it is only 2023. The GOP has 77 more years to burnish its legacy this century. But wow, does the trajectory so far not look great. Coming up, we're going to talk to NPR's Steve Inskeep about how Republicans used to do it a couple of centuries ago and used to do it, by the way, a lot more effectively. That's when we come back. Stay with us. You know, President Abraham Lincoln once said, I'm an optimist because I don't see any other way. That was how the former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, began his press conference earlier this evening. Now, Abraham Lincoln may or may not have actually said that, but he definitely warned his colleagues at the Illinois Republican Convention in 1858 that a house divided against itself cannot stand. 165 years later, the Republican Party is quite different from what it was when Abraham Lincoln issued that warning. But the party is again a house divided ousting its own speaker for the first time in American history. Is there any historical parallel for the depth of this division? Is there any way out of it? I know just who to ask. Joining me now is Steve Inskeep, host of Morning Edition and Up First on NPR. He is also the author of the very prescient new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America, which is out today. Steve, thanks for joining me on set. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, First, your thoughts on Kevin McCarthy invoking Abraham Lincoln. Well, having written this book about Lincoln's efforts to build political coalitions and build a majority, I can't help but note that McCarthy lost his. And there are a couple of factors there. It's been noted that just a few lawmakers were able to overturn McCarthy. But part of that has to do with the kind of politics they've practiced over the past several years. You could argue that had Republicans stood for something different over the past couple of years, they would have a big majority now and Matt Gates would have much less influence. Instead, McCarthy is where he is. And by the way, Matt Gates also does not have a majority. And 
when you say when Lincoln said a house divided against itself cannot stand, what he meant was sooner or later, one side or the other has to win. And we do not know who is going to win the struggle for control of the Republican Party in the House. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you make the good point in the book that Lincoln was um, someone ready to have difficult conversations and yeah. ready to have sort of polite disagreements with one another. Now, I would suggest to you that the chasm separating the parties is such that it's hard to imagine sort of um, camaraderie in the yeah. same way. And yet, when you look at the way in which Democrats, with very little apology, secured Kevin McCarthy's fate as an ousted speaker, one wonders if McCarthy had played that hand with Democrats a little bit differently, if he had not for ha- per- perchance gone on the Sunday shows and said that the potential government shutdown was all their fault, if he had made more of an overture towards Democrats Could his speakership have been saved? I think Democrats probably did not act on personal considerations, but on their calculation of their interests, just as McCarthy was acting, as he thought, on his interests. And there may well have been a different politics where Democrats would have seen it to be in their interest to prop up McCarthy. But they had so many substantive differences. It seems clear to me that they wanted Republicans to have to sort out their house themselves. Even though the uh, net result may be a more radical far right speaker. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the sort of parallel between now and, oh, I don't know, the precipice of the American Civil War and the way the sort of the parallels you see between now and then and whether we are inevitably headed toward a a fight amongst and between each other. I don't expect a civil war in the way that we had in the 1800s. One reason being that it's hard to figure out what it would be about. We have profound differences, but they're often about memes. They're about attitudes. They're about cultural Mm. trends. Uh, And I don't mean that there aren't real issues uh, like abortion, like the economy, like a million things. But a lot of our divides are kind of about almost nothing. They're about, they're, they're about a few words on social media, and it's hard to see anything that compares to slavery, which is what the Civil War was. And that, I think, is taken in, in, in I, I, that's well-taken point, but when you look at January 6th, that's when it is about, yeah, yeah that is yeah. a bad yeah. one. No, political violence is very possible yeah. because we saw it on January 6th. We've seen a lot of it in American history, and it's very possible we would see something less than a full-blown Civil War. Sure. Yeah. I, I guess I wonder, when you, when you look at the sort of lessons and the conversations that you outline in this book, How do you extrapolate that to what can and should happen today? Well, Lincoln was somebody I was talking about interests a moment ago. Lincoln thought about the interests of the person he was talking to, the person he was dealing with, and tried to appeal to those interests. He tried to understand the other person and figure out an argument for why they should support him, support his point of view. That didn't always work. He was dealing with some very, very unpleasant people or people with very unpleasant views. And he was trying desperately to build a majority against slavery, which was really hard given the attitudes of the overwhelmingly white electorate at the time. And one of his insights, I think, was not to throw away people who might be of use to him sometime, be civil to everyone, but also insist on principles. Mm -hmm. And maybe from time to time you would find just enough people to ally with you to make a majority. Uh, the Republican Speaker of the House in the party of Lincoln fell a few votes short today. He sure did. But I do wonder, in, in, like taking those notes to heart, how you grade President Biden, because he very much still wants to talk to the part of the Republican Party in Congress that is not entranced with MAGAism to the extent that that 
wing exists. And Biden, I'm not going to judge whether he's doing well or badly, but he's clearly attempting that Lincoln style of politics. Yeah. I want to deal with this person that I disagree with on nine issues, but there's a tenth where we can do business. Yeah. And, and that conversation appears to be ongoing no matter what happens in the House. And Biden is almost always ready for the second chance. It's what democracy is. And if we think about the definition of democracy, the, the person across the table who holds terrible beliefs, who is wrong about everything, still has power because they still have the vote. Yeah. The only way that wouldn't be true is if we didn't have democracy. If we're going to have democracy, we have to deal with people we dislike. Stevens Keep, I listen to you all the time, well, my friend. You. A thank treat you. to have you here in the flesh. Thank you for your time tonight. Congratulations on the book. Again, it is Differ We Must. It is out today. That is our show for this evening. 